We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us today for Season 4, Episode 59. Today we speak with Dr. Jeannie McHugo, the Chair of the Department of PA Studies for the University of North Dakota. Jeannie speaks with Steph and I about her program, about her path to becoming a PA, and about the incredible outcomes that they have had producing primary care PAs in rural parts of North Dakota. As always, you can learn more about our guests at our website, www.papathpodcast.com. We hope you enjoy the session. Well, Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. Steph and I are very excited to learn about the University of North Dakota and understand some of the amazing things your program's been doing over the years, but also to learn about you and your own path to becoming a PA and kind of what it's like to be a PA in North Dakota. Uh, so why don't we start with your own personal path to becoming a PA? Sure. Thank you, Kevin and Stephanie, for having me on today. It's an honor and a privilege to be here with you. Um, and I think as we reflect on the journey of our profession, it's it's fun and exciting to think about our own personal journey as well in terms of where we've been and where we aspire to be going in the future. So I um, grew up on a family farm in a very rural area in a much more tropical Dakota, down in South Dakota. And uh, my forefathers homesteaded that land. And, and that is what I grew up learning and knowing and loving. And um had those strong family values of faith and hard work and took all of us in our different roles to make the farm work. And so there was an importance of teamwork and community in that upbringing. And so when I think about that, I don't really come from a long line of healthcare workers or healthcare professionals. In fact, as I was thinking about this, there weren't any. I have no direct relations, at least in growing up, that were nurses or any health professions not even in any in my extended family. And so I was drawn to healthcare, I think, by the observation of our small community. We had about 900 people, a large farming outreach, and the lack of access to healthcare. And so I remember my father, who was um, a servant of the community and was serving on the community hospital board. So we had a hospital and a clinic and a nursing home supported by those 900 people. And it was in um, a time of desperation of trying to keep it open, right? And so as an obedient young girl, I would <clears throat> eavesdrop on my parents' conversations at night when I was supposed to be sleeping, uh, sometime between the news and Johnny Carson, uh, and hear these conversations about how are we going to keep this community hospital afloat? How are we going to keep this physician in our community and provide those services to our people? And so 
I'm, I'm certain that there were some gray hairs over that. And I have reason to believe there was maybe some financial contributions and some shifting of funds from the farm to keeping that community hospital open. And so I, I remember that as a, as a young girl, and I remember that being very important to our community. And so providing some historical context to where we are in time, which will also delineate where my age is. So this was early to mid seventies that this was happening. So fast forward to driving age on the farm, which is 14, although many of us drew, drove at maybe eight or 10, um, <laughs> kind of illegally. Yeah. Um, I began working, right, because I could drive now. And I was trained by the lead nurse in that community hospital as a nurse aide, right? So there wasn't a certification or a formal training process. I had a uniform of all white, made me feel pretty cool as a 14-year-old, delineated me from the candy striper, right? But I don't ever remember um, garnering a, a paycheck, really. So perhaps it was volunteer. That didn't seem important. But what was important, that was I was contributing to a greater cause, that I was able to provide some sort of service to that community hospital that my father and many others in the community had fought so hard to save. So I was called a nurse aide, not a candy striper. That was important at the age of 14. But um, the hospital closed in 1988. And I lost my job, of course, and the community lost much, much more. And as I think back about that, I think that was a pinnacle moment for me to kind of think about, I may only be one, but how can I maybe play an impact? in some of these smaller communities so that this doesn't have to happen. And of course, we aspire to great and wonderful things when we're teenagers, we can change the world That's right. <laughs> at that time frame. So I kind of always knew it'd be something in healthcare in my high school years. I was uncertain as to the discipline, maybe um, occupational therapy or physical therapy. I had completed all the aptitude tests, if you remember doing those in junior high. I was supposed to be either a cosmetologist which uh, I have zero strength, zero skills at cosmetology tasks, or a radio DJ. Nice. So yeah, I don't know where that comes from, <laughs> but that's what the aptitude test showed. So we'll come back to that in just a minute. But I think not unlike any high school senior, I was ready to get out of the house, ready to move on and explore the curiosities of the world. And so I did the unthinkable and I moved out of state for school. Wow. I know this was a really big deal in my family. I was the first person to go out of state to attend college. Were, were you the baby of the family? I am the baby of the family. Oh, see, that's classic. <laughs> the baby gets to go where they want. <laughs> That was a pretty big deal. That big six-hour <laughs> six car drive over to Southern Minnesota. Oh my gosh. That was a long ways. Um, and so um, undergraduate degree in human biology with a minor in chemistry. If you say that really fast, it sounds like cosmetology, yeah. right? And, uh, and you guessed it, another minor in music, which maybe, maybe radio DJ is in my retirement future. I, I haven't given up the hope for that 80s rock and, you know, summer sensations. You know, Jeannie, uh, the interesting piece of this is that I actually have a history as a radio DJ. My family owned my hometown radio station. So we will have to collaborate on that, Stephanie. My father was a DJ in the Air Force. So yeah, we have some some commonalities. I'm in such good company right here. <laughs> I also learned to drive on a farm at the age of 12. So 
that's uh-huh. that's that is not uncommon. I, I agree. Yes, the field is a great place to learn how the machinery works, right? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I uh, finished my undergraduate degree there. My um, advisor at the time really pushed towards medical school admissions, and I applied and interviewed, but I actually withdrew right after that I finished the interviews because it just didn't feel right. It just wasn't quite the fit that I was looking for. So back to the drawing board and researching where I felt my experiences and my strengths would fit. I'd found an article in a journal from a physician in New York City. Um, who had described the PA profession, and I began to dig a little bit deeper. I knew that I didn't want a bachelor's degree. I already had one of those. I knew that there were only seven programs in the country that had master's degrees, so that would limit where I needed to go. So I applied and interviewed at three to four of those schools and quickly realized they were all in really big cities. And even though I was anxious to leave home just a few years prior, I was the Midwest girl. And so I ended up heading to South Dakota for a second bachelor's degree and then completed the distance MPAS from UNMC in Omaha and started practice in South Dakota after that. So I worked clinically in family medicine and urgent care in a community-based clinic and hospital setting and then transitioned to a state-funded developmental center. So a completely different funding stream, completely different organizational structure and then was recruited to work for a private orthopedic surgery group. So again, a whole nother structure of funding and organizational support. So it's just kind of interesting how those roles changed and how the opportunities and leadership was different based on the different mission and vision of each of those places. And so then my family size was expanding and I had the need for a little more flexibility in my career field. And so I spoke with the orthopedic surgeons and and suggested some changes in my responsibilities, but at that time that wasn't of their interest. And so then it was time to kind of explore other options. I saw a position open in teaching here at the university. So I started to ask questions about what that looked like and uh, was offered the job. I interviewed in February. I drove up here in a blizzard and I drove home in a blizzard. (laughs) I said, what am I thinking? What am I doing? But I was impressed with the university setting, and I was inspired um, and fascinated by the work, um, considering education as a career, building on those clinical skills and expertise, and coming from a rural area, seeing the challenges and access to care and maintaining services for farming communities. It was a significant pay decrease from orthopedic surgery to come into PA education. This is in the early 2000s. And so my spouse left his job so that I could pursue my dream. And um, we struggled financially those first few years. And that will be 19 years this summer. So that we've been up in the hinterland of North Dakota. So that's kind of my journey and my history of how I got where I am and, and I'm still here. So Jeannie, the University of North Dakota has a really interesting history, the the PA program there, because what it looks like today wasn't really how it started. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the evolution of the UND PA program and kind of a a little bit about about its past and how it has evolved since it began? Absolutely. So um, the UND program began in 1970 with close relationships as a sister um, PA program to the University of Washington Medics. So Ruth Balwig was instrumental in helping the design of the program. We accepted in those first few classes 
um, returning vets from Vietnam, and then shortly thereafter adopted a nurse model where experienced nurses in small communities, similar to what I described growing up, applied together as a team with a physician in that small community. And oftentimes, the nurses would be supported financially from the community, and they would then come back and work as a PA in that area. Um, so this was when our program was a certificate program. So it was a one month or one month, one year, 12 month certificate program, largely distance education. And um, nurses would come here for a didactic session and then go practice in the clinic with their preceptor physician. And it was a sequential didactic clinical rotation. They would <clears throat> handwrite their assignments mail them in, we would correct them and mail them back. Um, and we would site visit all of those sites as well to make sure they were able to meet our goals and objectives. So then we kind of fast forward to a different admission process where we accept other licensed healthcare professionals. So respiratory therapists, um, occupational therapists, physical therapists, we had all sorts of different disciplines in the classroom. And if you think of um, you know, my trajectory coming into education here, all of the students were nurses. Um, all of them were, oh goodness, 15 to 20 years of experience. So they had completely different skill sets than what I had grown up with. And so there was a little bit of imposter syndrome coming into the classroom. And so I approached that simply with the amount of experience in this classroom as ICU nurses and ER nurses is extraordinary. And I have a lot to learn from each and every one of you. And you are here to become a PA. And those are the skills that I have and that I'm here to teach you. And we will learn together. We will learn along the curriculum together. So I came on board as this program transitioned to a master's program. So that was the impetus for needing more faculty. So that added on two semesters in advance of that clinical didactic clinical rotation I described, and then another semester on the back end for some of the specialties. And so that's when we then opened up to uh, greater admissions with the other healthcare professionals. And now fast forward, we're a little bit more of a traditional model with our admissions. Um, so we have certainly healthcare experience requirements and prerequisite courses, but it, our admissions has changed quite a bit now to be much more open and broad in terms of who's able to apply. That's that's great. I I just think that because I knew that about the University of North Dakota's past and its history, and you know I, I think that really is reflective of all of the different ways, kind of the the rich and diverse ways that the PA profession evolved. You know, it, it, from those early days to to where we are today. I think you and I probably share something in our programs where mine is located in Nebraska and yours is located in North Dakota. That probably it becomes a little difficult to recruit from a broad geographic area because it's a little bit difficult to overcome people's stereotypes of where we live, right? <laughs> I mean, we, uh, mm -hmm. we are in what is maybe not so fondly referred to as flyover country. And I think people have preconceived notions about what it means to live in Nebraska or live in North Dakota. So what would you say to people, you know, applicants that are considering different PA programs and, you know, might have some of those misperceptions of, of what it means to live in what I know to be the beautiful state of North Dakota. Um, you know, how, how would you, how would you sell your, your geographic area and your program to, to people who might be, might have otherwise not considered it? Mm -hmm. So we are a state funded medical school. 
And so we're largely recruiting area um, students from the state and nearby states. Um, so often our applicants are familiar with the upper Midwest, the geographic nature, <clears throat> the rurality, the idea that there's no hills or mountains out my window <laughs> for miles and miles and miles, right? And so it hasn't been overly difficult to recruit students. What's been more difficult is to recruit and retain faculty. And so that has been something in my role as department chair in the 18, nearly 19 years now, we have been full faculty complement two separate years of that time frame. And so teamwork, again, is a value of this department. Filling in the needs of the program is a value of the department and being flexible and adaptable to do so. Um, so I'm pleased to say that we have full faculty complement at the moment, and um, <laughs> I hope that continues. Some of our um, recruitment strategy really is you have to be familiar with the area. You have to understand what the rurality looks like and what that means and the benefits of such in um, the ethics and the hard work and the people and um, the understanding of the area. Nope, we don't have any downhill skiing here. Nope, you know, there's certain things if you're looking for, I become very, very honest and very transparent of that's not an opportunity here. You'd have to travel so far, but we do have this, this, and this. Um, and so it's, it's a realization of what we have to offer and those selling points of what we have to offer and the understanding of the value of rural. What's interesting to me, because my wife grew up on a, her family owned a farm and mm -hmm. coming from Illinois, we had a lot of farm experiences as well. And you talked about this in your, your precursor about your path, that the community comes together. Mm -hmm. And I was just talking to my, my colleague here at the University of Arizona, who has family that have one of the largest ranches in the United States in Southeastern Arizona. And there, there's a, a couple times a year where the wife in the family is cooking nonstop for all the ranchers who come in to help do the roundup. And I'm sure you've experienced that when everybody comes in to help with the planting of the field or, you know, getting the uh, corn or what have you out. How does that translate to being a PA in a rural community? Like what are the experiences that your students have when they're out there in this uh, rural component of their training? So Kevin, when that happens and everyone is busy with the Roundup, for us, it's more of the grain harvest and uh, where the woman you had referred to is cooking all the time. Uh, farmers aren't going to come in for their hypertensive rechecks during that time frame. So don't even try to say, oh, I'll see you back in August. They're not coming. Um, so their priorities are different. Their priorities are what's going to keep my lifestyle moving forward. So when you think about that, it's like, how can I strategically plan the follow-ups if I'm so able to do so, um, so that I have greater compliance um, with chronic disease follow-up with medications and so forth. That said, part of our region, um, just across the river over into Minnesota is some lakes country. And so students are going to see uh, fish hook removals and boating accidents and things like that. So it's uh, understanding of what's coming into the clinic at any given time and then trying to strategically place students for those rotations in those areas. And so, you know, winter time, farming is a little slower, good time to catch up on things, a good time to make those preventive health plans and how are we, and stress management and mental health issues and those types of things. So um, it is an understanding of the culture and when the busy times are, where the stressful times are, 
and then have that play into the clinical education of the students as well. That's interesting. And I, I imagine you also have your fair bit of uh, snowmobiling injuries, hunting accidents. You know, I know when they're when they're active on the farm, there's a lot of occupational injuries that they have to uh, work on, which in many cases, from my experience, the farmers don't even want to come in for. But, you know, some sometimes they're pretty serious injuries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so those uh, communities where the farmers don't want to come in, right? So how can we go there? How can we provide services or train others in those communities to be able to do what needs to be done in those scenarios? I think pre-hospital care is extremely important. Um, you know, open opportunities for farming communities to have access to first aid training, mm -hmm. to basic EMT training, um, to those to CPR training, so that um, you know, son-in-law or whoever's first on the scene is able to do what needs to be done sure. um, and get that person to a, a critical access hospital. So, so Steph had kind of started this conversation about your applicant pool. Let's talk about what makes a strong applicant for your program. Uh, well, I think we have now an admissions process similar to many, where there's prerequisite courses and healthcare experience, personal statement and references. But I think, you know, what we're looking for is the problem solving and the critical decision making, that in-depth life experience um, and exposure to healthcare to back up those assumptions and those stories. We aim to get to know those applicants and try to determine their goals and mission, you know, thinking the end in mind, right, in terms of will they meet our mission? Will they aspire to serve a rural area? And if so, what stories lead us to believe that? What experiences, what connections um, have they had in the past that lead us to think that they will, in fact, um, do well in our program and meet our mission with the end in mind. So uh, we're looking for that. We're looking for those who have planned and prepared, who have thought about the role of the PA and what that looks like in rural North Dakota and the tri-state area, who have thought how to best serve their community, who understand or have shadowed or experienced how it's different to be maybe the only provider in that community. Oh, the day doesn't always end at 5 p.m. <laughs> it's a it's kind of a different role than a bigger city shift type of uh, employment. Um, so that would be an ideal candidate, someone who's put a lot of thought into that, who's got the stories to to back up those aspirations to work in a rural area. So you're talking about authenticity uh, when I hear you talk about your mission and what you're looking for. Maybe could you share a few examples of students who have been successful in navigating your program that demonstrated that authenticity and how they did that? Mm -hmm. So we're learning over time that um, while we value healthcare experience in this program always has valued depth in healthcare experience, it doesn't always necessarily matter what area whether it's a, a nurse in a rural community or if it's a paramedic uh, running the rigs pre-hospital, what matters more so is that authenticity, is that willingness to go above and beyond. Of course, in addition to the academic transcripts and all of that, but the, the ability to understand the rural area, to see the clinical aspects, to work together as a team, it's those non-cognitive things that we're seeing are just as, if not more important than some of the academic pieces. 
So will you tell us a little bit about just your program itself and kind of how it's structured between the, the didactic and the clinical and, you know, maybe some of the things that make your, you feel like make your curriculum unique opportunities that your students have that may, they may not get elsewhere? Sure. So I think I might have stated I was the first faculty here who was not a graduate of the program. And so I, you know, was a traditional model student with the first year of didactic, second year of clinic. Um, so coming into this new master's development, you know, not only the change from clinician to academician that we've talked about in other venues, but also a curriculum that was unfamiliar. So the program offers opportunities for students to be able to study at home for the first two semesters. So they come to campus for orientation week. Everybody gets on the same playing field in terms of technology, and we get to know each other a little bit. The initial courses are introduced on campus, and we start some assignments and some learning activities. Um, and then students are able to, to go back to their home areas. And we teach online with synchronous and asynchronous. Um, and this was all pre-COVID stuff too. So this didn't change. This was it started in middle 2004-ish. And so that's been our, our tradition um, of our delivery for those first two semesters. So those are the sciences, the anatomy, the physiology, the pharmacology, um, the diagnostic studies, some of the EKG things, preclinical work. And then when they come to campus in the most beautiful time of year here, which is January, um, it's hockey season. And so that's, that's the glory of it all, right? <laughs> they come on campus for uh, four weeks. And um, I should back up. I apologize. They do come on campus for two weeks in the fall uh, for kind of an H&P boot camp, right? History and physical, because they've been learning that online and they've been practicing at home. And then they come on campus and we, we do an H&P boot camp. But then we turn the calendar year, we come during hockey season and we study um, the most common systems seen in primary care. So cardiovascular, respiratory, GI, endocrine and musculoskeletal are part of that didactic session. And so lots of uh, pre-work in terms of reading and recorded lectures when they're on campus. Um, those are learning activities. So simulation, case studies, focal problem solving labs, all the hands-on um, types of procedures and things that go along with those systems. They go to clinic then for six weeks initially, primary care, um, and they study those areas in which we've discussed in the curriculum fully understanding that they're going to see lots of different things outside of that, but we try to give them an area in which to focus. So it's very much an adult learning model, right? We've, we've learned this, we're going to apply it right away. And then they come back to campus again uh, for the month of April, and we learn another set of systems. So in that set of systems, um, I'd have to look at all of our scheduling to know all the next systems, women's health, um, neurology, renal, you know, just the next four or five systems along the way. So again, similar model, the pre-reading, the pre-recorded lectures when they're physically here on our campus. It's the hands-on case studies, focal problem solving scenarios, simulation procedures. We send them back out into clinic so that they have the next piece of the puzzle and they work with the preceptor on those uh, medical conditions. Then we do it again in the fall. They come back on campus uh, for two weeks this time, a little bit more of a geriatric focus, um, the complexity of patient care, uh, ethics is throughout all of the uh, curriculum, um, but here we're talking about end-of-life issues, polypharmacy, 
we put all those things together and then they go back into clinic for the rest of the calendar year. So they've got all of the pieces of primary care now. They spend about 32 weeks of clinic in a primary care setting. That might be family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, um, any of those what we call specialties that fall under the primary care definition. All along that time, they still have online coursework as well. So they're still working on diagnostic studies um, in those systems, right? It's all taught systematically. Um, they have professional issues all throughout the curriculum. Um, and so they have a, a study day each day of the week. So they're required to work four hours in the clinic at minimum. They have a day to study. And then they have that rotating campus clinic, campus clinic uh, kind of set up. That whole calendar year is what the certificate program was in the early 70s. That piece, of course, the curriculum has changed, but that piece, that structure has stayed the same. And then their final semester is uh, the spring, which we're in now. And so we rotate through the specialty clerkships. So they're OR and ER, um, and some of the um, electives fall into that play as well. They're working on a scholarly project through last fall and this semester, and then they'll come on campus for their final summative didactic for the last two weeks, the end of the semester. Wow, so, that is really unique. It is very different. Um, it's, I have to say, tried and true. I didn't develop it. I was the, the newbie that said, I don't understand how this works. <laughs> But I'm a believer now after being here 18 years and, and knowing a lot of people that have gone through this curriculum, it really works to have pieces and then application quickly thereafter. And so that seems to, to seal the content a little bit more and students seem to do pretty well. It's a little more challenging, I have to say, to explain to a preceptor, right? If they have not precepted students from this program before, they don't quite understand that well, we can't really talk about stroke management in the first clinical, this, or you can't expect the student to know much about stroke management in this first clinical. They haven't had neurology until the second. So it requires a little bit more kind of pre-work with your preceptors to make sure that their expectations are in alignment with what the students have learned and what their instructional objectives are for those periods of time. That's right. That's yeah. right. But But I have to presume that your outcomes are identical or nearly identical to the rest of us who are doing it in a different way. Otherwise, you still wouldn't, you wouldn't have retained your accreditation. So That's isn't it right. interesting that we, we have different ways to do it. We still end up at the same end of the road, yes. so to speak. Yes, that's right. And so keeping in mind with our mission, right, of serving rural communities. So those are the outcomes like our legislature is interested in, right? How are we putting PAs into our rural areas? And it seems to be working and it has been working and I guess I bring up some data points that of our last graduating class have about 68% that are currently in primary care. Um, That's exceptional. And so I, I'm proud of that. So I'm hoping that that is reflective, that we're selecting those that are truly, authentically interested in working in a primary care setting. About 54% are working in rural areas. And then if you combine that together, we have 46% in rural primary care. So um, there are always some that will go into the specialties, mainly surgical specialties, or maybe for whatever reason, family reasons or whatever, they have to stay in a certain geographic area. We all know that that impacts decisions on employ, employment. But all in all, I'm very pleased with our outcomes of rural uh, and primary care return. 
for, for those who don't know, the national average for primary care is hovering around 19 or 20 percent right now. Mm -hmm. So those numbers are exceptional. I don't have data on how long they stay, right? Because sure. a full alum survey <laughs> response rates are always difficult to, to have statistically relevant, but um, we do know that at least initially, and, and we do recommend that uh, a rural primary care place is a great place to start um, as a new graduate. And so we recommend that they start there. And if they choose to specialize later, that's their choice, but at least they have that broad-based beginning to be able to get their feet under them as a new graduate PA. What's interesting I, to me, Jeannie, is that that, that longitudinal primary care focus, it, it, that's a hallmark of the MedEx model, right? Mm -hmm, uh, I know you, UPAP did that, MedEx did that. So I have to assume that your, your data suggests the other part of that is that they're doing high quality experiences with primary care providers for a longitudinal perspective, mm -hmm. which probably influences their, their decisions to go into primary care as well. It does, and at times it even opens up opportunities, right? And so if they've been a PA student in a clinical setting for 30 to 32 weeks, or sometimes even a little bit more, that clinic begins to assume that, wow, maybe this person likes it here, and maybe this would uh, increase the quality of life for our current providers. How could we maybe bring them on as part of our team? And as you know, that orientation piece is done, right? They kind of know how the clinic rolls and, and they can slide right in. And so that happens quite regularly. And that's kind of the, the glory of, of meeting the mission. It's like it's working. And that's very gratifying as a, as a, as a program to see that when that happens. Jeannie, we're going to switch gears just a little bit, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about you. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, for, for those who don't know, Jeannie has a, a long history of volunteer contributions to the PA profession. Would you just kind of give us a little snippet of some of the things that you've done professionally with our professional organizations? And if you wouldn't mind just touching on what that's meant kind of for you professionally, but what also how that, how you think those experiences bring value back to your institution? That's a good question. So going back to coming here to this institution, transitioning into a master's curriculum, of course, uh, monitoring and incorporating tweaks and revisions along the way has garnered experience where you feel as though you have something to offer to other educators. And yeah, we just did a curricular revision. Let's have a conversation about what that looked like or it almost builds those relationships with others who reach out and say, how have you done this and how does this work? So I was um, very active with PAEA. Gosh, it was the education committee, first of all, then the conference curriculum committee as the PAEA went through some reorganization, recruitment and admissions council, and now more so the program directors 101 and some of the jump starts. Um, so still active in those roles because I really enjoy having conversations, sharing what I can from what I've learned and continually learning from others who may be embarking on a curricular revision or a new idea in how to deliver content. Um, and so I appreciate those collaborations um, immensely with others in the same journey as, as I in PA education. I've also been active in the ARCPA, so I've been site visiting now for oh, probably about 12 years. And so I just, it's just so interesting to see, as Kevin, you alluded to earlier, how 
the outcomes are strong, but the methods are varied, right? And so we have that, that saying, if you've seen one PA program, you've seen one PA program, and it is just so true. As you review an application uh, for accreditation and you garner questions um, based on your experiences and other programs that you've seen, how is this working? And it's just a continual evolution of learning every time you approach a program to review for the accrediting process. I also served on the commission for two terms, so six years in total. And so again, uh, an extremely busy um, commission, a lot of reviews, a lot of detail work, as you can imagine. And again, it is becoming a member of something greater than ourselves, right? It is that professional community, belongingness, um, and yet giving back a little bit to ensure that our educational processes are, um, in fact, able to serve our public well and serve our students well. And so I relish those experiences. I am always open to exploring new experiences. And I think that brings a sense of mentorship to our own program, experience to our own program, that then you build some credibility with the faculty, with the administration, with the students. You are able to suggest and recommend others on your team to also become involved and you can speak through your own lens of what it was like for you and, and it may be the same and may be different, but you should do this because you'll meet these great people like Kevin and Stephanie and you'll be able to learn and see and um, experience new things. So as far as state involvement, I have served as the liaison from the State Academy to the educational component. We're the only program in North Dakota, so we have a close working relationship with our State Academy. I have a faculty member now who's been very active and very interested in the State Academy, so I've, I've happily sat back a little bit and let him progress, and he's been the president of the NDAPA, and he now sits on the Board of Medicine for our state, so fun, I think, as a leader to kind of humbly sit back and, and watch others do some of those, engage in those leadership um, opportunities as well. So always opening, open to learning, always open to new ideas and um, looking for the next best thing. Since you brought the uh, your colleague at the state level, where is North Dakota at related to its practice laws and, and what are some of the changes you see coming down the, the road? So I believe it was 2021, although don't quote me, uh, when we were able to pass new law within our state at the legislative level. We were one of the earlier states in processing some of that um, new model language um, through our state legislature because of our rurality, because of the access to care in rural areas where you may have the scenario of uh, a PA of 25 years of experience and the physician decides to retire and now the, PA, the what the community has to go without healthcare, there's no supervising physician. So the State Board of Medical Examiners has done a wonderful job of working with the State Academy um, to develop language that was passed um, with a lot of work, but overwhelmingly voted in from the legislative level um, to allow our autonomy and our optimal team practice in our state. And so that has been model legislation. Um, and um, again, um, our 
representative from our faculty team uh, led the charge in some of that. And for that, I'm grateful. And so it's it's been a really good change for our state and for our students to see that happen and witness that. That's awesome. So many states are in that process right now. Right. So it's nice to see states like yours that have led that approach so that we can use that as a avenue to discuss with our own legislatures about the importance of that enabling legislation. So mm-hmm. absolutely. So before we finish up, we always like to give our guests an opportunity to really reflect on anything that you feel like we haven't had the opportunity to talk about. Are there topics that you came to the podcast wanting to discuss or any thoughts that you have for our audience? Oh, that's a good question. And so I'm thankful we're on the other side, we hope, of a national pandemic. And I am looking uh, forward with great excitement to hopefully attending the educational forum in person this year. And with that, I was able to attend virtually the last several years, as many were. And I heard a theme in the past couple of years about um, the need for leadership development. And so I have studied leadership for a number of years, and, and that means reading a lot of books and presentations and workshops and conversations and dialogue and interviews such as this, and incorporating lots of that within our department and our students. But without a moment of hesitation, I know that it is our responsibility as leaders of PA education to leave this world in a better state in which we found it. And so as I look at what does the next 10 years look like for me as a PA educator, I want to be able to help others in that self-discovery process to be able to think beyond themselves, students, faculty, staff, other programs, to think honestly and courageously about the bigger picture. What does that look like? We have the the doctoral summit coming up. We have uh, bigger trends and issues than uh, what's on the syllabus next week, right? I want us to think bigger picture and be able to foster that growth in others. Um, So I felt that as a common theme as I listened to some of the presentations last year, and I aspire to garner more conversations about that in our PA education community and how we can support others, how we can retain others, and how we can be a model for students, and maybe how we can even incorporate more leadership development in our curricula, which we're great at adding things and we're terrible at taking things away, right? (laughs) We have those discussions at the program level very often. So I just feel that that is an important part as we think about the changing laws in a lot of different states this year. I like to follow the um, the updates as to what things are happening across our country. Um, So if we think about the autonomy that we may be experiencing in more practices, we need to be thinking about a more intentional and deliberate thought towards leadership development in our students. Absolutely. Those were very uh, prescient and poignant uh, parting thoughts. So we we appreciate we appreciate you taking some time with us today and sharing your thoughts and learning about how how unique your program is and how true to mission and the outcomes that you've had are just are just outstanding. So thanks for being with us today. Yeah. Thank All right. You, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure and honor to be here with you. Thanks so much. Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Jeannie McHugo, for her time and insights into the PA profession and the innovative approach they're using at the University of North Dakota. They have clearly figured out the magic to building a primary care workforce for their state. Tune in next week as we speak with Kara Carruthers, the past president for PAEA and current associate director 
at the newly developing Meharry College of Medicine PA program. Kara speaks with Steph and I about their program and about her own path to becoming a PA as a Nebraska native. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you're walking in life. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the University of Arizona.